microdosing or micro lifts, however you may term it, there's pros and cons. I think it's been most beneficial where we see things pay off is late in the season. I think as we hit, especially this time of year, we really start to see our team take off versus other teams start to slowly kind of drop off. So I think that's when we really start to see the residuals of, of microdosing start to pay off. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. It's been a long time coming, but I'm finally delighted to be able to welcome Stephanie Mock onto the Pacey Performance Podcast. So alongside her leadership and management role at the University of Pittsburgh, Steph also looks after the volleyball program. And within this, she had a lot of success using microdosing. So in this episode of the podcast, microdosing is the uh, the main talking point. So how does Steph structure it in season? What does a typical week look like? ranging from Monday to Friday and the build-up to a game on the Friday, how that's managed between the Friday game and the Sunday game, how she uses it for priming, how she uses it for strength and power development. It's a really interesting episode where we go into a lot of detail on exactly how she programs microdosing uh, in season. We also discuss her as a as a woman working in a male-dominated industry. And we also talk about the uh, the technology that you have at the University of Pittsburgh and how that is integrated within this microdosing system to answer questions and and modify training based on, on, on real-world objective data. So really interesting episode coming up with Steph. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. So without further ado, over to the episode with Steph. Steph Mock, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Rob, thanks so much for having me on. I'm super excited. It's been a long time coming and you're one of few that I've uh, podcast guests, past or present, I've actually met in person. 
Slice of the awesome. it's great yeah. to have you on. <laughs> no, it was great to come over to Leeds and, and meet you in real life. Rob, you're a lot taller than I realized. So that was a lot of people. A lot of people say yeah. that. Didn't expect you to be as tall, but maybe because I'm sat down and do the podcast and I just look I don't know. People don't know. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But Steph, before I wish we... people told me that. Uh... <laughs> But before we dive into some of the discussions that we've we've got planned, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, a short bio? Yeah, definitely. So clearly Stephanie Mock uh, grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, played a lot of sports in high school, uh, mainly track and field, gymnastics, volleyball. In college, I played volleyball at West Virginia University. I played Libero DS. Um, once I got done playing uh, my collegiate career, then I started working in strength and conditioning at West Virginia University. Had a great mentor or a couple of great mentors, Daryl Bauer and Mike Joseph. Um, that's when football, Olympic sports and basketball were kind of all one back in the day. I'm dating myself. Um, after that, I went to intern at University of Pittsburgh. Um, that was a fantastic opportunity back towards home. And then after that, I had my longest stint down at Clemson University in South Carolina. Um, really enjoyed that. Was there from 2013 to 2018. Was able to, to grow within one place from an intern to GA. Um, did my master's degree there to assistant strength coach to assistant director under Rick Franzblau. And then from there, I got my first director job as director of Olympic sports at Mississippi State University. I was there for three years, um, supported a high level from administration, built a new weight room, built a lot of new uh, connections and networks in Mississippi. And then I actually came back up north um, to my old stomping grounds into my current role at the University of Pittsburgh as assistant AD for sports performance. Um, I oversee all of strength and conditioning and sports science initiatives, but still train one team, uh, volleyball, being the one that has my, my heart and soul that I played in college. So that's a quick bio, which is kind of sad that I can say it in 30 seconds, let's say, but um, it's been great and, and continuing. It's good. It's good. So Rick, Rick was on the podcast in the very early days. I think he was probably the, one of the first people that came on from the U.S., yeah, no, I, I remember listening to his episode because he was like, all right, here we go. I'm going to record. And I remember when I did my first podcast, I had asked him as my mentor, I'm like, hey, what should I expect when I do a podcast? And he's like, Stephanie, just imagine that you're riding in the car with someone and you're just having a conversation to keep it fluent. Um, but yeah, no, Rick was fantastic to learn from. And he really groomed me into that that first director role. He told me, he asked me what my goal was when I got to Clemson. And I said, I want to be a director. And he's like, all right, I'm going to push you and get you prepared. So super grateful for him um, in my career. Yeah, I think he was actually the guys at Vald that put me on to Rick. Did you get yeah, guys you use Vald at Clemson? We did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the products. And it's funny to think back then, like 2014, 2015, what the Vald products looked like to to now, you know, we're all sweet. being innovative and, and all that. So yeah, now they have grip and dynamo and, and all that. So it's been cool. hundred percent. Before we get into the kind of X's and O's and we're going to have a little chat around microdosing and the, the, some of the data and the sports science stuff at, at Pitt, let's have a little chat around what it's like to be a woman in a very much a male dominated environment. We had Lorena Torres and, and Sophia, someone that you've just met recently, um, which is amazing. We both love Soph. So we've talked about with though that those two and they were very open and honest about what it's like. And that was a few years ago. So I'd just like to get a bit of an update on, you know, where things are at and your experiences. Yeah, no, I uh I definitely get this question frequently from whether it's other practitioners in the field and especially up and coming 
interns, graduate assistants that are females um, just asking for advice. So I think it's a, a really powerful question to ask, but I've learned to frame it in a, a little bit of a different manner as I've kind of climbed the ladder. Uh, and I'm lucky here at Pitt, actually, our chancellor of the university, she is a woman. Um, and then our athletic director, Heather Like, that, that was part of my hiring process. She's also a woman and few of in the Power Five level uh, in the States. And she actually got AD of the year last year. So I'm around a, a lot of great females to learn from and get mentored by. But um, I really like to think about it as like this job is all about leadership, like my current role. Um, and with it being about leadership, it's about relationship building. Uh, it's about managing complex situations. And at the end of the day, um, you can do all these things, whether you're a man or a woman, right? So I think I've started to personally think about it, um, really just what are my unique leadership qualities and whether I'm a guy or a girl. And like I mentioned, I learned from Rick, you know, like a lot of my leadership qualities, but how I make it unique to myself um, and not making it so like gender biased. But I think as I've, I've grown throughout my time and um, of course there's like different cohorts that are created that people do a great job of like our collegiate SNC women's group chat, um, having those unique chat groups to, to kind of bounce ideas off of, or as you're going through different things, but I've really framed it at this point of like, what are my unique leadership qualities and, and how am I going to take time to groom that? And, and really like whether I have male assistants, female assistants, help them build and grow so that hopefully they can get into a director role at some point. Have you had any bad experiences as a woman? Um, I wouldn't say bad. I'd say eye-opening. And especially as I've moved around the States, um, I think up in the North, it's, it's very normal for females to have careers. But as I moved down south, it was just a little bit different in regards to um, whenever I'd be in the weight room um, and other like female, like whether it was like moms bringing their sons on recruiting visits and um, grandmas or whatever else, just seeing a female in the weight room that sometimes surprised like parents, you know, because they're like, oh man, like women being in the weight room, that really wasn't something you saw 20 years ago, right? It's really become something that has built a lot of momentum over the last 10 years, but um I was really lucky that I've always had male mentors that, that never looked at me as a female and never thought like, oh man, Steph can't run this baseball group because she's a chick and the guys aren't going to respect her. I've always had male mentors that literally saw me as an equal, you know, and, and never even brought up the fact that I was a female. So I think that was empowering to have uh, male mentors that, that never sold me short for just my gender. You know, they always just pushed me for what, they saw my ceiling could be and my capabilities and coaching abilities and what I knew. And yeah, they always treated me just like the guys, you know? So I think it's really, really powerful. And it's great that I've had a lot of male mentors that um, have pushed me and never saw that gender would be like uh, something that would hold me back. You know, when you're hiring as, as in your position, you do hire, you're in charge of or involved in the process of hiring is, is the amount of girls applying for jobs increased since you've been in that kind of position? I think it's been interesting. And even if I look at like my own personal career, like the last two leadership positions I've taken at Mississippi State and at the University of Pittsburgh, I've replaced men like uh, Tyler Carpenter. He's at Ohio State now. He was in the role that I was in before um, and Brian Neal at Mississippi State. And so I think it's been 
it's been interesting to to just see that in and of itself because I like usually it's like oh we've never had like a head female of the SNC department or sports science department so I definitely think it's it's still becoming new um, and I think just trying to drive more and more people into the field um, but I think doing podcasts like this just talking about women in leadership roles and just trying to normalize things and continue to build momentum because now now there's just education around like women can do it you know, like women can work in any sport because it's been done. So I think continuing to to blaze paths, like you said, like Lorena, Sophia, like there's a lot of women that have come through. And I think it's super important for me in a leadership role that if I have like younger women reach out to me, you know, wanting to ask questions and whatever else, I always put time aside to do that because it's extremely important because women had done it for me as I was coming up in the field. So I think it's always important to pay it back. Did you see any differences or similarities when you went over to Australia with with this kind of conversation? There was more of it. There was less of it. Different. Did you take any note of that? Yeah, I actually, I was lucky enough to attend the Women's Breakfast at the ASCA um, and listen to a lot of different speakers and a, a lot of different insight, and especially the sport of rugby. Clearly, it's very big over there and not so much in the state, so um, there was a female rugby player up there. I kind of talked about playing with the boys and, uh, I thought that was really interesting. So I was thinking about like females playing in football, like in the States, like American football, I'd be like, oh man, it's happening. But like, whether you're a kicker or whatever else. So, um, I think the woman's breakfast, like the numbers were, were definitely fantastic, you know, of who attended and I was lucky to be there and they're constantly trying to push to figure out like, what can we do better? Um, and I think it was great because I was sitting with a lot of women like Doc Soph was there and a few other women that have their PhDs. And I think definitely research and education is, is extremely big in Australia, sometimes compared to the States. And I, I respected that for sure. Um, but yeah, I think they're, they're facing the same barriers or challenges maybe over there as in the States, but um, nothing too outlandish by any means. So the microdosing as a topic. So we've had a couple of people on. So Derek Hansen, I don't know five years ago, talking about microdosing from a, a sprint perspective. And then Matt Cuthbert, who's done some research in this area uh, from the UK, works with the women's national team, actually, or the, the youth version of men's uh, women's national team in, in football here. So dived into the kind of research side and some studies that he'd done. But how do you use microdosing? Why go down this track in the first place? Man, um, so it's been a long time coming. And I think... At the beginning of times, um, really when I started using microdosing or micro lifts or really diving into it, I'd say it was around 2018. I had uh, attended a conference with Ramsey when he was out with the Kings, the Sacramento Kings. Um, and I had listened to a presentation by uh, Corey Schlesinger when he was at Stanford. Um, so he was kind of talking through the ins and outs and it was very hands-on. He had someone demoing different movements. And he was just talking through at Stanford how he was implementing microdosing. So that was my first exposure in 2018 to seeing how Corey was utilizing it at Stanford. So um, that was a little bit of my bias, you know, and background and philosophy came from him. And then he put out actually that course most recently as well that I kind of worked through for continuing education. But when I arrived to the University of Pittsburgh um, in 2021, I started training the volleyball team. And our head volleyball coach, Dan Fisher, he had already been implementing microdosing before I got here. So it was actually something that I was like, hey, I've seen it, but now I'm going to have to apply it. So you better get on your horse and go um, and really figure out what's going on. So I think he had a strong influence. Actually, one of his good friends is the Stanford head 
uh, women's volleyball coach. So it was interesting to have Corey being at Stanford and then our head coach being close. So all things Stanford were kind of how these roots ended up uh, over in Pittsburgh on the other side of the, the U.S. But from my point of view, um, when you think about traditional in-season training, it's it's really uncommon um, to have multiple lift days in one week, right? You're usually allotted like one or two training sessions per week. And a lot of the time it's not even consistent. So when I heard about microdosing and why we microdose, I see it as a, a way to efficiently train in season around a lot of the constraints of schedules, practices, like competitions, frequent meetings with film, and even like their school schedules that we're balancing with student athletes in the college setting. So I think instead of doing like a low level court warm up each day, um, for 10 to 15 minutes, I was like, Hey, why does, why not have them in the weight room for 20 to 30 minutes, you know, prior to practice and get a more specific stimulus so we can really elevate their level of play. So just utilizing that warm up time that you're down on the court, usually doing the same thing every single day as we can all connect with, um, why not utilize that time and ask for a little bit more time to really get a, a specific stimulus that we want. So another area that that really I deal with, um, with our team is our travel schedule as well. Um, so that's a huge hurdle for a lot of programs. And, and we see microdosing as movement as medicine. That's what we always tell the girls or motion is lotion, whatever kind of floats your boat. But, um, really upon arrival to a new location, it's my job to get the team prepared. You know, I have the first touch point myself and the athletic trainer to be like, all right, where are we at? What do we need to do? Um, and really these micro lifts have been super helpful just when traveling on the road. Um, I think it's a great way to get athletes activated, you know, when getting off the plane or bus, depending on how you're traveling. But then also you have to think about it in a way of um, we're moving to recover, you know, a lot of the time as well. So as we're moving to recover and then also we're using it as a, a way to prime the CNS you know, for the practice to follow. So I have, depending on the day of the week and all that, and we can dive into the, the details as well. But really, those are some of the, the key reasons why we began to microdose. And again, um, it was really cool that our, our head coach already had the, the idea in place. Um, and it wasn't like me as the SNC practitioner having to go and, and sell it to him. He was already like, hey, mock, like we're doing this. I think it works great. And I'm like, heck yeah, how can I, what can I do to make it better, you know, and continue to build and throw ideas out there. And at some point, I think we've discussed clearly like lifting on game day, but just the logistics of like travel, like I said, sometimes it's really hard to figure out how we can do. And, and when we're in conference play, we play Friday and Sunday, typically. Um, how can we time out and figure out how we can fit that in as well? So I think um, that would be great in the future. So in the lead up to a game, so you've got a Friday and a Sunday. In that straight after the game on the Sunday, let's work from there and then work forward to the, to the next game. Where does microdosing fit? Where was it? Where were SNC um, slots previously, and then where have you kind of reduced them and and split them over the week? Yeah, so our our typical layout for we play in the ACC um, is Sunday. We're usually if we're at home, like our games usually at one o'clock. Then we finish up. They do whatever recovery they need to do with the athletic trainer and treatment. And then as we roll into Monday, um, that's usually our off day. That's usually their academic day. Um, but they come in and they'll do recovery or regeneration work with myself and our athletic trainer. Um, then as we roll into Tuesday, that's more of our, our strength high force day. 
So we'll do usually some type of like clean variation or squat and then some type of Nordic, um, depending on where we're at throughout the season. Um, then from Tuesday, we go to Wednesday clearly, and that's more of our power accessory work day. So we'll usually do something like concentric base, like a trap bar deadlift and some unilateral work. Um, Wednesday going into Thursday, then we uh, start to get closer to game day, right? Because we play on Friday. So we'll implement some type of like loaded jump with a med ball throw or slam. And then we play on Friday, usually at night. Um, so that's usually around 6 or 7 p.m. We'll have a game. And then Saturday, we turn around and usually train in the morning. So usually if we're at home, it's around 9 or 10. And then we practice after. But that day is kind of what I talked about earlier. That's our, our primer like central nervous system recharge type day. So we'll do some type of like speed clean, whether it's a hang clean position that really correlates to that vertical jump with a box jump and then like an accelerated jump. So maybe something similar to French contrast. And then Sunday we play again. So, and then we um, reset and, and roll it back around. So I think uh, microdosing or micro lifts, however you may term it, um, there's pros and cons as well. And I think it's an, always important to kind of visit that, but I think it's been most beneficial where we see things pay off is late in the season. Because if you think about like a typical team that may lift once or twice uh, a week throughout the whole entire season, we start in August and we finish in December. I think as we hit, especially this time of year, we really start to see our team take off versus other teams start to slowly kind of drop off. So I think that's when we really start to see the residuals of, of microdosing start to pay off because the girls are like, Hey, they're taking ownership of their training. They're like, we're getting stronger and we're going to peak at the right time versus other teams. It might be like, if you're lifting post-practice on like a Monday or a Tuesday, depending on where your off day falls, what conference you're in, it's more and more of a drag as year through the season. And I think we try to really, create a, a culture around like taking ownership and, and really enjoying training, you know, and, and what the stimulus and the effects that you get. And we take a lot of time to educate the girls as well. So, um, and really just looking at female athletes uh, from a hormonal standpoint, like creating testosterone, I think we try to really tell the girls to get their tea up and take ownership of that as well. So that, that leading to the game on the Friday post Sunday game, would, would you normally have one session in there previous to the microdosing implementation would it be like a tuesday session or a wednesday session now that's split over three days in the week so you're saying for friday sunday when we play games yeah, so, um, so, the other lift days yeah so pre so previous to microdosing kind of been implemented would that normally just be one session and it'd be everything would be in there but now that's split over multiple yeah. Okay. So typically, like when I played in college a bajillion years ago, um, the normal volleyball, let's say, quote unquote, layout would be Monday's your off day. And then Tuesday, you may get a lift in. So you'll practice for like two and a half hours because usually that's your most intense practice day being furthest out from game day. Tuesday, you'll you'll train. Um, and then after that, you'll go to the weight room and you'll lift for like 45 minutes to an hour instead of having that. Like usually for our days, Tuesday is usually like a 25 to 30 minute lift. And as we get closer to game take, kind of tailors down, then it's like a 20 to 25 and it's a 15 to 20. Then it's like a 15 and then a 15 for those days, really just around the game days. So, but yeah, it's typically like the traditional model before in season was depending on your schedule from a travel standpoint, you get one lift in for sure on Tuesday. Sometimes you get a second lift day in on Wednesday if you could fit it in. Um, but that was it. Yeah, like two lifts for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. So in terms of the total volume of those four sessions that you do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 
Saturday. Is that similar? Is that more? Is that less than what you would probably get with that more structured traditional lifting schedule? I would definitely say it's more and and I like to think about it in a in a way that it's less movements per session. So that equals higher quality of movement, right? And just like movement mastery. Because think about whenever an athlete comes into a training session or yourself, if you have eight movements you have to focus on that day versus when they come in with me, it may be three or four or at most five. But uh, yeah, that, that higher quality of movement just because you have less movements per session um, really, really helps create player buy-in and uh, drive up that strength and power or whatever you're working on that day for intent. And what, what's the, what's the athlete feedback been, been like? Oh, it's especially for, I mean, typically females don't like to lift, right? Um, a lot of the time culturally, like coming up in high school and everything else, it's like, oh man, they correlate from like a, a figure standpoint, like, oh, lifting makes me bigger. Um, so I think with that minimal effective dose, and I think instilling the culture of training and how important it is from like a player health standpoint, it's created a lot of buy-in and it just makes it, it's normalized, right? It's just part of their day uh, when you have such a high frequency. Because when you think about in the summertime as we're going through that prep phase or like even in the spring when they're in off season, that's known as like the time with the strength coach to really develop. As you create a culture that like ideally the strength coaches with the team 365, it's just looking a little bit different because we don't microdose all year round. Um, but like creating that normality of you're going to go in, you're going to work with staff. It may look a little bit different each day. This is the layout of the week. And we go through that, but um, just creating that, that higher exposure. Uh, and it's just a more efficient way at the end of the day to warm up prior to practice. But the one thing that I like too, speaking of higher exposures, like the more times that I'm seeing them throughout the week, it's a constant reevaluation of readiness. So every day that I'm seeing them before practice, a lot of the time our athletic trainer tries to come up to the weight room as well. We're seeing them move and evaluating, like usually Tuesdays when we do our force plate jumps, um, they always do a check-in in the morning to fill out like sleep, meals that they ate, so on and so forth. But um, each day seeing them prior to practice, we'd be like, oh, hey, when I saw so-and-so do trap bar jumps, like I was seeing this, this, and this, maybe we limit their jump count today, or maybe, Hey, that person looks really good today. Let's push it. Let's add 20 jumps to their jump limit. Um, so on and so forth. So I think lifting prior to practice and that reevaluation time, um, is, is really potent and really important for us. So apart from the athlete feedback, which is obviously super, super important, have you got any like success stories based on data you've collected to give you confidence like this is definitely the way to go like strength maintenance or improvements throughout the season versus that classic drop off because of you know schedules are missed or volume dropping towards the end of the season when guys are getting tired yeah no i would say um because this is my third season working with the team um and super lucky to work with them dan fisher is a great head coach but uh Every year at the end of the year, I work with our director of sports science, uh, Felix Prossel, to talk about, hey, we put together an end of the year evaluation. And we base this off of all the different information we're collecting off of uh, the girls throughout season. In the last two seasons, they do do those force plate jumps on um, every Tuesday. Um, so after that day off and um, pretty much 90 percent of the girls, minus a couple, maybe with injuries, but everyone's peaking at the right time at the end of the season. They're jumping their highest, which volleyball 
KPIs, jump height is going to be most important. So I think using our, our force plates um, and just looking at those numbers, that's what the coach cares about, right? Um, I collect a lot of different metrics, but like at the end of the day, jump height reigns supreme. But um, at the end of the season, the last two years, all of our players minus a couple that, that may have some some strange injuries or just contact injuries, like stepping on each other under the net and rolling an ankle are all jumping their highest at the end of the season in December. So I think just knowing that um, and just as I look at, I've been working around volleyball for over 10 years and playing the sport, I think player health, you know, looking at our injury report and who's available, player availability is key. Um, I think from a player availability standpoint and, and who's ready to, to compete in the postseason, we're at our highest point right now. And I, I would definitely attribute that to our higher levels of uh, training in the weight room throughout being in season. So do you do microdosing throughout the year or do you just do it at particular time points? Really just as we start preseason or camp um, at the beginning of August through December is when we do microdosing. Um, and then we go back to um, for off season. So starting in January through the summer, we do turn into um, four days of lift. Um, we usually lift Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, Wednesday kind of being that down day and same with the summer. And then we go back into like 45 minute lifts. So it definitely gets, that's our time to really build that robustness and work capacity. So then we can hold on to those uh, strength residuals throughout season. So um, I think, and I, I see people utilize it in different ways. And I know um, clearly we have the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, so just NHL, I've heard about a lot of teams from a hockey standpoint and NBA util- utilizing microdosing. And um, I think it's been interesting to kind of hear what fits their framework, you know, because everybody, like I said, travels the biggest one, right? And game density. And I think a lot of teams use microdosing just because they're playing, let's say, three games a week, you know? So it's like, where can we get it in? Um, and then depending on playing time, players' age, there's just a lot of different things that are different factors that people have to look at. On the Tuesday, when you do the jumps, obviously you mentioned that jump high, like the coach ultimately like how high they jump in but are there any other metrics that you use to guide what happens wednesday thursday friday sorry wednesday thursday before the game on saturday on friday yeah i think uh we do marry the the jump metrics with we we wear catapult throughout training as well for volleyball so they use the t7 units the the smaller ones which are nice because compared to football uniforms to volleyball uniforms they look vastly different so we look at some of those metrics and then look at our jump metrics. And then we kind of utilize that to look at norms, you know, and how far outside they are from their, their norms on a daily basis. And then we really look at for the sport of volleyball um, asymmetries, because a lot of the time if you watch the sport, the girls are coming down on one leg more frequently than not. Um, so I think we really gauge it from a, an asymmetry standpoint and historical information of maybe what some, what are some injuries that they've had in the past and making sure that we're staying on our P's and Q's. But I think also um, we try to, for micro micro lifts or microdosing, we have to look at like starters, reserves, and anybody that's in return to play. So I think that's where the force plate numbers, the catapult numbers, and then just like how much they're playing on the court. We try to marry those all together and then make the right decision. It's not just like one piece of tech that's going to drive all the decision making. It's definitely a, a marriage between all of those. And then still... We do put some weight in our subjective um, data when it comes to our daily check-ins in the morning because they'll rate like um, really RPE of the training session the day before. Um, they'll put like a challenge metric um, of practice the day before. But I think it's it's definitely a marriage of all the different information. 
But I think too, sometimes people don't like to talk about the cons of microdosing as well. And I think it's important because a lot of people will be like, Steph, hey, how are you implementing it? And then they'll tell me about their current setup. And I'm like, oh, that could be difficult. So I think it's always important to kind of think about the other end of the spectrum as well if you don't have the right setup. So what, what, where would you say it's maybe not the right setup? What, what points would you go, mm, not sure about that? Yeah. And, and we're actually building a new facility here opening in 2025. And I'm like, oh, man, clearly our, our current situation is like the dream scenario with where the weight room is compared to the volleyball court. But I think that's going to be most likely the first con of microdosing is if you don't have the facility location, um, that can allow you to go from, like I said, you're lifting, kind of replacing that warm up to go straight down to the court for practice. And if you're not like 10 steps from the court, it's going to make it pretty difficult. So if you're lifting your training facility is a drive from your practice court, like that's probably not going to work, you know? So you got to figure out what's going to fit your piece. And then also you have to take into equation um, when we're traveling on the roads, when we have to do our Thursday lift and our Saturday lift on the road, um, how far is the weight room from the court for practice. And sometimes I've had to call and luckily a lot of strength coaches across the U S have been super helpful for me. Um, but dropping off like kettlebells, dumbbells, med balls, bands at the court, like courtside, I've had to do lifts just if the weight room is a 10 minute drive or if we're in a city and you have to go through traffic. So I think the facility location is going to be key, um, and can be a con, Another one is just you need to have the correct staffing. You know, I only have one team as a strength coach, but there are some strength coaches that have three teams. And if you can't pull off lifting every day just because you have three different teams, like that can be super tough. So just taking that into account, depending on your staff layout. Um, Luckily for me, when I came in, clearly our head coach was already educated around it. But trying to create buy-in can be a little bit difficult because, like you said, um, there is some research out there, but not too, too much just yet. So I think the more that people can validate and show that microdosing is working, um, the better. So I think that's super important. Um, but yeah, like transitions between the weight room and practice, that's going to be a key one. Um, another one, just thinking about it, just you have to have a massive amount of uh, equipment, right? So like whenever I'm doing these lifts, they have to move extremely fast. So if I don't have at least like five trap bars, and it depends on your roster size, but we have like 16 girls, but if I don't have five trap bars or five racks at least, you know, to get the job done, we're not going to be able to get through the lift in that 25 to 30 minute time block. So you're gonna have to think about, hey, how much equipment do I have? And this is, is this feasible? Because I've gone in weight rooms on the road that are just like right off the gym and there's two racks in there. And I'm like, if you're trying to lift the whole team off two racks, that could get dicey and you're gonna have to get super creative. Um, and then the last con kind of going into staffing, I would say is when you do have like the three different lift groups, let's say as you get deeper into season, if you have like a return to play type group, you have like a reserves, like non-starters and then starters groups, you have like three lifts going on. And if you have no help, like that could get super dicey. You know, luckily I do have, there's myself, I have a, a sports scientist that helps a lot of the testing. I have a paid intern to help with managing some of the return to play cases or vice versa. We'll switch groups depending on the day. But um, yeah, those are just some things to consider if you are like, hey, next season, I'd love to try out microdosing. Kind of go through all those. Clearly, it sounds really good when I talk through all the pros, but you got to think about the cons on the flip side as well. While we're on the conversation of volleyball, have you seen Rhett Larson's warm ups with the gym? Oh, I need to look into this. Oh, you got to share them with me, Rob. <laughs> Rhett Larson. So he wrote a, a piece for uh, Sportsman a little while ago about warm ups. 
but he's putting more and more on his Instagram. So as soon as we as soon as we finish, I think he's with the German national team. He's, I may kill him here, but I think he's Canadian. I don't think he's American. I think he's Canadian, and he works. But he works with the German national team. Honestly, have a little look. You'll be inspired. You'll be absolutely inspired. Yes. It's um, different, different, but very entertaining. Yeah, you know what? I'm always trying to find a new stimulus for the girls, you know? So um, I'm all about it, you know? you got to adapt at all times. I'm about to get your dancing shoes on. That's all I'm saying. Get your dance. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so ready. <laughs> Maybe I can start implementing it in the off-season, yeah. see how the girls take to yeah. it, and then we'll dive on it. And, I mean, if it's German background, Felix is from Germany, our director of sports science. So there you go. I'll, have, I'll have Felix run through it and see how he feels, and yeah. then... um. Felix can get his dancing shoes on. You'll know what I mean when you see it. <laughs> I can't wait. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Steph. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we transition away from this microdosing viewpoint, but then we come back to it when it comes to integrating technology and the technology stack that they have at the University of Pittsburgh across their multiple uh, multiple sports and hundreds of athletes. So really interesting part two coming up with Steph. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X Rack Range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us, that's P-L-A-E dot U-S. And now back to the episode with Steph. So let's have a little dive into the data collection, implementation, decision-making side of things. So what is the decision-making? I mean, use your force plates as an example. We've kind of touched on that already, but make sure in that making sure that flow is working between collecting data and actually implementing something off the back of it versus just collecting data for the sake of collecting data. What process have you got in place across the different, across the data stack that you've got to make sure that keeps flowing through? Yeah, no, I think um, I have to give credit to, like I've said, director of sports science, Felix Brassel, because he, this is his area, you know, and it's been my job coming into pit to uh, build out our sports science department. Felix is our first ever director of sports science for the athletic department. And we've worked hand in hand to, to really do a good job on the front end of being proactive to your point of educating our sport coaches on what does the data mean? What does the data look like? How are we going to implement it? And I think we do, we have 19 different sports, which we have 500, over 500 athletes at Pitt. And with the 19 different sports, it's not a cookie cutter approach, right? We'll have some holistic themes and a mission, but depending on the team and what they utilize, depending on KPIs is kind of up to them. We want them to take it and run with it. But really it starts with just having a mission for the department. And really our mission is to optimize the human potential and growth of all our student athletes through data-informed decision-making. And I'm sure this is a common theme across a lot of schools across the country when it comes to sports science. But 
We try to keep it simple with a feedback loop. So uh, we look at it in um, four different ways. So first thing we do is collect the information, right? So whether it's subjective, like I was talking about the wellness questionnaires to objective data, first, we're going to collect that information depending on the team. They can kind of pick their poison in that regard of what they're going to collect based off what is important. Um, Next one, then we'll go through the, the analyze phase. So that's looking at the norms, the thresholds, the trends. Um, and that's really just the data workflow, which we can kind of dive into a little bit later. Then from there, we'll adjust, right? So whether we have to increase training, decrease training, or find something alternative, depending on the student athlete, like I said, with return to play. Um, and the last one is just implementation. So this is kind of, this has taken some time, right? Because when we started the sports science department, it takes a year to really collect a lot of that information to start to make, create decision-making, but implementation whether it's training implementation, um, education, whether it's recovery modalities to really maximize um, that feedback loop. But we try to use that feedback loop to simplify things, whether it's for our own staff, whether it's for the sport coaches, whether it's for the other performance team members like nutrition, athletic training. But um, it's been really powerful. And uh, we've also been really trying to take do our due diligence to build out our, our testing and assessment especially off the the new state of the state that we've been kind of going through with NIL and transfer portal and and kids coming in and out. But I'm sure we'll dive into that as well. Talk to me about that because they're all words that you've put together that mean nothing. (laughs) Well, they do because people have mentioned it. But yeah, would you mind just explaining that, please? Of course. So um, the transfer portal is, is new. Uh, for college sports since 2018. So I guess it's been around, if you think about COVID, it it happened somewhere around there. Um, And and in the past, it was a little bit more difficult for student athletes to transfer transfer from school to school. There were a few more barriers in place, like you couldn't transfer within the same conference. Um, Coaches could block you from going to other schools. But now it's created this system where if I want to transfer as a student athlete, there's certain times of the year, depending on when you're in season. But if I'm going through the volleyball season, And we finish playing, um, it's as easy as me going to compliance or you don't have to go to your head coach, which is crazy, but going to compliance and saying, hey, I want to enter enter the transfer portal. Um, My situation here at Pitt, I want to get more playing time, let's say, if that's my reason, go into the portal. And then it's kind of like other coaches can go shopping and pick up, hey, I need a new outside hitter. Go shopping. Um, Let me go in and find one. And then you can even see to the point that if they're on scholarship or not on scholarship, you know, if they're an aided student athlete and then you can go back and clearly watch all their film and tape and, and whatever else. So that's, that's the transfer portal side. So that started in 2018, um, getting paid as a student athlete that started in 2021. So that's something that everyone I think is still trying to grasp, you know, and, and do at a high level. But, um, with NIL and the transfer portal kind of working hand in hand, we used to have a, a long-term athlete development model where it's like, hey, I have a student athlete come in freshman year, and most likely you'd see them all four years. Um, now roles have reversed um, with just student athletes getting paid in the transfer portal. Now it's more of a play now mentality. So when a student athlete comes in, they expect to start right away. You don't get that like red shirt or developmental year. Um, it's very much like, and that's why I think microdosing has panned out so well for us is because now I'm getting more training exposures in season because we have a lot of athletes that aren't with us very long. So um, it's been really great, but it has forced our hand into really thinking outside the box of updating our uh, testing and assessment battery, just because we know it's like 
we're going to have a student athlete for one year and then they're going to go out. And how are we going to maximize their onboarding process to figure out where they're at and what we need to do on our end um, as a performance team? Do you have to, is there any stipulations, any data that you have to collect to be able to pass it on? Do you have to pass on data to the next school that this guy or girl is going to? So this has been an an interesting topic because it's so new, right? This started 2021, um, especially with NIL, which has only driven up the transfer portal rates because at first when the portal opened up, um, I'd say 2018, 2019 kind of stayed stagnant. But as we went from 2020 to 2021, and this could, a lot of people say because of COVID as well, and people were starting to like, hey, I want to move closer to home or mental health issues or whatever it may be. Um, But 2020 to 2021, the transfer portal rates doubled, you know, with student athletes moving just because I think they were starting to see the new lay of the land. So um, it's really, it's really forced us to be like, let's go back and reflect because college sports and the evolution of college sports, this is something we're going to look back 10 years from now and be like, holy cow, Um, kids are getting paid up to millions of dollars right now. It's a billion dollar industry. So if you don't want to adjust, whether it's recruiting tactics or, or, for us testing and assessment, we got to update. And I think um, whether it's like part of our ACC meetings or other conference meetings or NC2A right now, it's kind of like the good old boys club of, I have an athlete come in from another school. And luckily I know that strength coach. Um, I'll reach out to them and be like, Hey, what did you see go well? Not well. Like, what are you willing to share? Like maybe, Hey, it's as simple as like when this athlete does trap our deadlift, it always aggravates their low back. So I've always tried to like, go and do other methods or or other training modalities. So I think, yeah, right now there's no shared data library, anything like that. But I think that'd be something that would be beneficial in the future. And that's actually because this is part of the information that I presented on at the ASCA, but that was one of the questions that I did get asked post-presentation is, is there somewhere where you guys are sharing data um, as student athletes kind of enter that portal? And you would think it could be extremely beneficial, not only for SNC practitioners, but for athletic trainers to look at historical data um, for injuries and things like that. So the, the, the fact that these guys and girls are getting paid affects you because you you might not have them for very long because you know there's more chance because of various different reasons that they're going to come do the thing and then just disappear. So we need to get as much information as quickly as possible. Right, okay, that's, that's the reason, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think what we call it now, and that's probably going to be one of our bigger projects this summer is we call it holistic student athlete development, right? So when they come on board with us, the onboarding process and some student athletes can come in January, most of them come in the summer. Um, but like sometimes we'll get freshmen coming in early in January for certain teams. Um, but for our holistic student athlete development model, We've always had, let's say, the the testing measurements, for example, like a soccer player, like for strength, we do force frame, AB and adduction and Nord board. For power, we do a counter movement jump, um, body composition, whether you utilize Dexar or Bod Pod. Like these were all like the normal testing batteries that we would take student athletes through. But now we're starting to look at with us just having a lot of like one and done um, student athletes, we're starting to look at. Um, decision-making a little bit more. So looking at vision training and where to put them on the the pitch or the field, um, we utilize synaptic for that. And then also just some of their psychosocial profile. So um, Felix implemented the the big five personality traits um, tests for their onboarding to figure out 
um, whether it's grittiness, but we've tried to add those two elements to our holistic student athlete development onboarding to try to paint that even fuller picture um, for our sport coaches. And it's something that we plan to continue to build out this summer and kind of talk about what we're missing and what would be helpful for our sport coaches, because that's what drives this whole thing at the end of the day. I know Felix is a bit of an ah, ah studio whiz, isn't he? And I was just... He is, he is. <laughs> I was just... <laughs> I greatly appreciate him being a, uh, a whiz in that regard, because yeah, our, uh, our data workflow, he creates systems that just kind of run themselves. And he, he educates our sports science master students that are, are partnered with the academic side of the house at Pitt. But, but he does a great job, um, whether it's collecting the information, centralizing it, and then creating good visualizations and sharing it. So yeah, he's, he is the data whiz. You've, you've once again led me to our next point expertly which is the importance of data visualization how how big has that been for you in terms of educating coaches getting decisions made at the you know in in quick time because of the accessibility and the um ease that data is actually interpreted what and obviously felix is at the heart of that with his with his wizardry but how's that been for you and what impact has that had on um on you and the head coaches yeah i think um what we've tried to do a really good job of, and, and we've acquired with Teamworks and Smartabase working hand in hand now, and we already had Teamworks. Um, as we made that switch over, um, the sport coaches were already aware clearly what Teamworks was. So then when we were educating them on where we we're going to centralize all the data, um, and when they update rosters on Teamworks, it does the same thing on Smartabase. It allowed the sport coaches to kind of see them as one, which was really nice. But um, when we look at our systems that we've created and what what really Felix has created. So kudos to him. Um, we try to lay it out pretty simple. And I've touched on it a little bit in a sense of, so we talked to the sport coaches, Hey, we're going to collect this data, right? Whether it's catapult, whether it's vault, whether it's Hawken, um, we're going to collect the data and then we're going to put it into clearly smarter base. That's where we centralize it. And they're like, all right, Hey, think about that as the hub keeps everything um, neat and tidy and in one spot. And then that's when Felix comes into place with R um, when it comes to the hygiene of the data and processing the data. So they know that Felix is going to handle all that and create like, hey, they're like, this is a problem I'm seeing. Could you create this visualization to help answer my question? And that's where it comes into um, Felix does a great job creating shiny apps for our performance team members. So an athletic trainer may want to go look at a specific student athlete that's having shin pain and they go into their force plate jumps and then they can literally within the shiny app that Felix created kind of pull out uh, an infographic or, or whatever they may want to see. And then we can share that with the sport coach. But I think with that system and that layout that Felix has created, the sport coaches feel as if they have ownership, um, a little bit of what they want to see in problem solving. And if there is something that they want to see, Felix can go in and kind of pull that specific information out for them. You mentioned about the, the kind of, having patience with data, especially in them early phases of collecting a particular metric or using a particular technology. How do the head coaches and I suppose the, the, the athletes themselves feel about having to have that patience? Like, can you tell me this? Well, not yet. Just keep, keep doing what we're asking of you and we'll tell you next year. Like how, how is that patience? And, and then I suppose that flows into the fact that these guys or girls may have gone by that point. Like, is that a difficult conversation to have? Yeah, I think 
And especially when you're onboarding a new piece of technology, like this is the first year that we've used Catapult with volleyball. And I think we've always tried to, Felix and I, um, when we're sending, whether it's reports through email or having conversations, we always mention like, this is an observation that I'm seeing. We never recommend like, hey, I recommend you take out these drills from practice, right? We'll, we'll say trends that we see with certain student athletes. Um, and then we'll always point to the research, right? Like, hey, research says X. So then if that sport coach wants to dive into, we'll share the article and that'll help create more conversations to go forward. And I think education is super powerful. So as we were onboarding this whole entire department, and I got this idea from Travis Fuentes at Texas, their director of sports science, but he said handing out like a sports science playbook. Um, so just going through clearly like the mission, the vision of the department and where it's going. And then also just um, what resources do we have within the department? Uh, and then also it's helpful for recruiting when sport coaches are talking with recruits coming in, because you'd be surprised how many high schools already have some of this different software and technology, whether it's wearables like an aura ring or whether it's force plates in the weight room. Um, but we created a playbook so they can always reference back to like, hey, Nordboard, what does that measure? Why could it be important? Should I implement it with my team? Um, kind of empowering them with the knowledge and then they can come to us with questions because at the end of the day, we don't go when we're introducing sports science to a head sport coach. We're not like, hey, this is all the stuff that we have. You know, it's like, hey, what questions do you want to answer? And like, how can we help with that? So it can be as simple as like, let's say with wrestling here, we're already collecting body weights on the guys. Clearly, we know that's really important. So maybe we just put it in a graph to lay out for the year. This is how X athletes body weight undulated. So maybe in the off season, we know that that athlete needs to um, just take take care of their bodies at a higher level and not gain 20 pounds, you know, but that can all be formulated in a graph. And that's already data that we're collecting. So I think sometimes when people think of sports science, it's like they think about buying a bunch of technology and they think about like just literally someone just sitting behind like a, a data jockey, you know, sitting behind a desk and just crunching numbers. And it's no like, Hey, let me go out and stand on the side of the pitch and watch practice and see how that flows. It's a lot of just, especially on the front end, like taking a lot of information in and just seeing kind of where you organically fit and how you can help really aid and support that, that performance piece of athletic trainings, bringing in data, strength conditioning, um, the PTs, uh, nutrition with Bob Pondexa. So there's already a lot of data coming in. How can you better organize and paint uh, a picture or tell a story with that data for specific athletes, for sport coaches, but also for the team and why we had success or maybe we didn't have as much success as we would like. I think that's a good place to to round off, Steph, and, and finish up. But if anyone wants yeah. to, I know you've presented some stuff at the ACA. If anyone wants to ask any more questions about anything that we've discussed or anything else for that matter, where's the best place people to go? Yeah, I would say you can either um, reach out to me via Instagram at, at Coach Steph Mock or uh, my email I can share with you, Rob, but it's smock at athletics.pit.edu. Um, I'd be more than happy to, to share that information with you guys. I think uh, if you want to hear more about name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal and the evolution of where college sports is going and, and just kind of how we're tackling these roadblocks, um, please feel free to reach out and yeah, thanks to all the people in Australia for having me as well because it was fantastic going over there. And it was summertime compared to it getting cold here in Pittsburgh. So It's delightful going over, isn't it? Getting that little break and a little bit of sun. Yeah, Definitely. Nice. Other than the 15-hour flight. But other than that, it was all worth it. <laughs> Not ideal. Not ideal. 
but I think <clears throat> I think I know your email off by heart. The amount of things I've been peppering you about with some exciting things to come down the pipe with Sportsman and Pitt. So uh, yes, you're looking forward to it. Maybe Rob's coming to the states. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but um, no, thank you very much, Steph. Really appreciate it, and um, look forward to chatting to you soon. No, thank you, Rob, so much for having me. My pleasure. See you, Steph. Thanks for tuning in to episode 474 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to get Steph on. It's taken me far too long to get her on the podcast, and it was a pleasure to have her. We alluded to a few things that were going on between Sportsmith and the University of Pittsburgh, and just today we have announced that tickets have gone on sale for a Sportsmith Speed Conference happening on the 1st and 2nd of June 2024 with an absolute all-star, world-class, global lineup. So if you're interested, head to sportsmith.co forward slash speed hyphen conference and more information can be found there but big thanks to team builder play and vile performance for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run its current form without these guys so i really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to checking to you next time